Okay, so we are in Revelation chapter 13, and if you remember... Uh, when we first started this uh, series on Revelation, uh, I told you from the very beginning that uh, we were going to run into some uh, run into some times when um, I was going to let you know about. Um, well, I guess uncertainties would be the best way to put it. Um, but I told you from the beginning that uh, what I what I endeavor to do, and of course I'm not able to do it perfectly. I know that, but what I endeavor to do is to present you with not just conclusions, this means that and this means that, but evidence uh, as to why I draw those conclusions. And I also told you that um, there are going to be some times when, um, to be honest, I'm a little unsure about what this exactly, uh, what this exactly is pointing to. And so Revelation chapter 13 is going to be uh, one of those chapters. It's not that I'm going to throw my hands up and say, hey, we just don't know. We have no idea. Never mind. Don't worry about it. Um, there are going to be a couple of options that are seem to me to be really valid options. And so uh, just to say that this one is uh, more valid than the other or this is what it means and it can't be this one. I'm not going to be able to do that a few times in this chapter. Uh, I'm going to present you with a few different options that both uh, have, a, um, uh, I think, a viability as to be what is being spoken of in uh, in Revelation chapter 13. So in Revelation 13, we're going to be talking about, of course, the beasts that finally come. Uh, you know, everybody wants to wants to look at the seven-headed dragon when we, when we look at Revelation, and so that's what... Uh, that's what we're going to do today. Before we begin reading the text, uh, just remember uh, that uh, remember the principle we learned in the last chapter, which is that uh, visionary sequence does not necessarily mean uh, chronology. What that means is uh, just because a vision is uh, is uh, uh, followed by this vision doesn't mean that that uh, that necessitates the fact that it will happen in time uh, in that way. And we saw that in the last chapter. If you remember, <clears throat> if we go all the way back to chapter 11, uh, we saw the, the end of the uh, trumpet judgments. And at the end of that judgment, it said that the, uh, the tabernacle of God was now open in heaven. And it's almost like a completion of the judgment happened. And then in chapter 12, the visions seem like they, they just take a step back and give you the overarching story. Remember, we, we kind of went all the way back to the birth of, of the Messiah by the woman and, and the dragon trying to kill the, the, the child and the child ascending to heaven. And we went all the way back to those events. So <clears throat> that should illustrate the point to you that just because chapter 12 in a visionary sequence follows chapter 11, uh, it doesn't nece- necessitate the chronology of uh, what's going Going on, we know that uh, John has reached back in chapter twelve, and he's going to continue that. We're continuing that visionary sequence in, in chapter eleven. We're still talking about the dragon, still talking about the beast, still talking about the. Uh, if you remember correctly, the uh, uh, in the last chapter, the dragon is going after the quote unquote other children of the woman, and so what we're going to be seeing <clears throat> is the uh, persecution of the saints uh, that is going on. And what John is doing is he's still he's still it almost seems like he still has backed up and is giving us the the overarching picture of of what's going on. This is not necessarily a chronological sequence of uh, things that are going to be happening or or all those kind of things. He is uh, he's showing how the dragon is going after the quote unquote other children of the woman. We know those are the saints, and we're going to see that uh, even in this chapter. 
So as we start reading, um, I, I'm going to uh, be showing you different things as we go and uh, and telling you um, where where my problems in this chapter lie. And I, there are some. If you are expecting me to come and to give you the definitive once for all interpretation of, of Revelation that is going to uh, uh, answer all your questions and make all this uh, speculation and all this study and interpretation go away, uh, I am sorry to disappoint you. That's not what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to show you some options, give you some evidence. And in this chapter specifically, for sure, you're probably going to have to just draw your own conclusion. Um, in chapter in chapter 13, verses 1 through 10 talks about a sea beast, a, a, a beast from the sea. And then the rest of the chapter, of course, it refers to the sea beast again later. But the rest of the chapter talks about a land beast. And a lot of people have made the connection between Behemoth and Leviathan and Job and these two sea beasts, uh, the sea beast and the land beast. Um, so if we just start reading, I'm going to show you the sea beast's appearance, the beast from the sea, his appearance, uh, what he what he kind of looks like and what that means. Uh, we're going to see the the uh, the power that he has, the authority that he has. Uh, we're going to see the people that follow him. And I'm going to make the case. I'll give it to you right up front. I'm going to make the case the 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 beast from the sea is is the Roman Empire, and that's pretty much undisputed. Uh, of course, there are some fringe people that that in, interpret it different ways. Maybe some, of course, the futurist is going to say it's a revived uh, Roman Empire in the future sometime. Um, but it, it's pretty obvious that the the sea beast is uh, the the evil Roman Empire, the empire being used to. Uh, to uh, make war with God's people and that kind of thing, the the land beast is where we're going to have our um, discussions. The land beast. I'm going to give you a few options as to as to what I think it could be. Uh, there are lots of options of people who say this is it is this or it's that. Uh, there's really only a couple viable options in my opinion, and I'll give those to you when we get to it. So let's talk about the sea beast first. <clears throat> First thing is it, it rises out of the sea. Verse 1 in Revelation 13 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, uh, seven heads, with ten diadems, with ten crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne uh, and great authority. So the first thing you see is this beast rises out of the sea and we saw in the last chapter if you remember we gave uh, some uh, some old testament references about how um, the sea is uh, the chaotic sea is is viewed from a, uh, a gentile perspective if you were a jewish person it's uh, associated with uh, the nations and those who are not jewish and that evidence was given in the last chapter so i'm not just making that up out of whole cloth you can go back and listen to that um, but even even more so if you were one of the churches in Asia Minor that received this letter uh, and it was being read in the uh, assembly of the congregation, you would understand, you would know that uh, when you see those ships coming from the west uh, across the sea, uh, you would know that, that that was Rome coming from coming from uh, uh, from Rome to Asia Minor. Or if you were in Jerusalem, they would come. Uh, this is how it's how governors and dignitaries, soldiers would have arrived uh, to the land in, in Asia. 
Asia Minor, uh, you know, and it's prophetic visionary language, but, you know, you can kind of see where you see the little ship on the horizon and then the more ships and then it just seems like they're rising out of the sea. This uh, this picture of uh, the the beast that rises out of the sea, um, it, it's it's prophetic language of the, the uh, direction from which they come, both being a Gentile uh, people, the Roman people, and from uh, the sea, they come to, um, you know, bring uh, armies to and, and governors and all those things, soldiers to Asia Minor and as well to Jerusalem. Uh, it has seven horns and I mean seven heads, excuse me, and ten horns. So you can see we talked about this a little last week. It looks just like the dragon. It looks just like the dragon uh, from the last uh, from the last chapter. I think the dragon have, if memory serves, the dragon has seven horns, and here this beast has ten horns, one for each uh, one for each uh, diadem for each horn, whereas the dragon had. Uh, 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 seven horns. I, I think I may be right about that. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and look. Uh, it looks just like the dragon. It's uh, but it's also a composite picture of the beasts uh, that we see from Daniel. Uh, now we talked a little bit about this last week, uh, but Daniel in Daniel chapter seven, he, he saw these beasts rising up from, uh, rising up to, uh, to conquer. And, uh, the beasts were, um, uh, they were representative of kingdoms. The first was, was, uh, Babylon. The, the second was, um, Medo-Persia. The third was, uh, uh, Greece and the fourth beast, which is an, kind of an unknown, unnamed, uh, Iron teeth beast was uh, was Rome, and we we saw all that last week. So I'm not going to go all the way back through that, but you can find those in uh, in Daniel chapter seven. But it's interesting that he uses the same animals: the leopard, the bear, the uh, the uh, man. I just read it. The leopard, the bear, and the lion, excuse me. Uh, those are the same beasts uh, the, of the three first beasts that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, one looked like a leopard, uh, one looked like a bear, one looked like a lion. Uh, these same three beasts are used uh, in Daniel that John refers to, that John refers to right here. Now, I could give you a lot of interpretational detail about what the seven heads represent and what the ten horns represent. And we know that seven, we've seen this already all the way through Revelation. Seven is the number of completion, perfection. Uh, ten is a is a, a number with symbolic value in the Old Testament. We've seen that before. We're going to see it again. And there's truth to that interpretation. So I'm not discounting that at all. But there's something that supersedes that interpretational model. And that's the book of Revelation itself. In Revelation chapter 17, we're going to jump ahead just a little bit, and I'm not going to spend too much time and energy in 17. We'll get to it when we get to it. But in, in Revelation chapter 17, the seven heads of the beast are identified for us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to um, stretch our minds too far. All we have to do is read what it says, and the ten horns, likewise, are identified for us. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, it says this, here is the mind which has wisdom. It says, think about what, what we're saying. This is, this is, you're going to be able to figure this out. It says in Revelation 17, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. 
Okay, and so what we're, the woman is uh, in reference to Revelation 17, we'll get to it when we get to it, but he's talking about the beast here, and it says anyone, he says that the, uh, the, the seven heads are seven mountains. Now, if, you, if you're talking about a city upon seven hills, a city upon seven mountains, um, anyone reading this would naturally see a reference to Rome, and even futurists who read this understand this uh, to be to be Rome, although they push it off into the future, saying it's a future uh, Roman Empire that has you know is rising from the uh, whatever. Um, there are some people who try to make this Jerusalem, saying that there's seven hills on the on, on Jerusalem. I, I don't think that that's a um, persuasive case uh rome is famous for being the city on seven hills uh the seven hills were um uh, aventine uh, calian capitoline esquiline palatine uh Quirinial, and viminal i think is the last one uh and so uh those are the the seven hills of rome the famous seven hills of rome so it's a city that sits on seven mountains uh seven hills uh the the first century mind would automatically go to rome it was famous uh for that and then in, in revelation seventeen ten, the seven heads are further described for us it says, and they are seven kings. So the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains, the seven hills on which Rome sits, and they are also seven kings. And it says in Revelation seventeen ten, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. This is all in Revelation seventeen ten. So he says these seven heads of the beast are seven kings. Five are dead, five have fallen. One is, one's currently reigning now, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. So at the time that John wrote this, and remember at the very beginning we made the case that John was writing pre-AD uh, 70, pre-the destruction of uh, uh, of Jerusalem, uh, at the time that John wrote this, five kings have fallen. You have Julius Caesar, who's dead, August, Augustus Caesar, Octavian, he's dead, Tiberius Caesar, he's the third, uh, Caligula, he's the fourth, Claudius is the fifth, and one king that currently now ruled is Nero. So those are the first six emperors of the Roman Empire. Five were gone. Nero was ruling at the time that Jerusalem, uh, well, at the time that the war of Jer- the, the Jerusalem war was going on, he actually committed suicide before the before the war was finished, before the city fell. But at the time John is writing, he was the one, he was one reigning. And it says one is yet to come and will remain only a short time. Uh, when Nero killed himself on June 9th in 68, uh, the, that was between that uh, that summer of 68 and uh, 69 that's known as the year of four emperors uh, there were four four different emperors that took the throne only reigned for a very very short time were either were assassinated and then all of this kind of calmed down when Vespasian came and finally took the throne but that first emperor was named Galba he reigned for six months and he was assassinated so what you see here in Revelation 17:10, it says there uh, these heads are seven kings the five have fallen that's uh, Julius Augustus Tiberius Caligula Claudius one is one re- reigning right now Nero and the other has not yet come and when he comes he must remain a little uh, only a little while that's Galba and then there was two after him uh, three after him that reigned for a short time as the empire was going through these civil wars after Nero's death and so uh, the composite picture that you see here in Revelation 
the beast is given it's basically given to us on a platter who this is who who is this beast that rises from the sea the seven heads are said to be seven hills on which he sits uh, that's the seven hills of Rome anybody in the first century would have known that and the seven heads are also identified with seven kings five are gone one's reigning and one's coming for a short time they would have known the, the five emperors you see that clearly uh, even in the New Testament you have the the uh, uh, Augustus and Tiberius uh, mentioned. You have Claudius mentioned as Paul is uh, the Jews were removed from Rome, and that's how Priscilla and Aquila came to be uh, um, acquainted with Paul in in his journeys because they had to leave Rome under Claudius's uh, reign. So you see those emperors uh, mentioned even in the New Testament. Uh, these these descriptions point to the Roman Empire as the sea beast. I mean, you can't take it uh, any other way. Um, and, and we need to also note, though, this is not the city of Rome. The beast is not the city of Rome. It's the empire of Rome because the beast is sometimes, and we're going to see this as we walk through Revelation, this sea beast is, is sometimes spoken of as a kingdom, and sometimes he's spoken of as an individual. And so we're going to see kind of a... Uh, a transference between the way that this beast is spoken of as uh, this mighty kingdom and also this individual, this beast person. And you kind of see the same thing today. Uh, you know, when uh, if you're speaking of, I don't know, in World War II or whatever, and, and Germany invades Poland. You know, you could say, hey, the, the the Third Reich Germany has invaded Poland. Or someone could come and say, hey, Hitler has invaded Poland. Uh, he is the, the leader of the regime is kind of equated with the regime itself. The same thing is goes on with, with Rome. When you see that, uh, when you see, uh, you could say, you could say, uh, I've said it before, that uh, that uh, Rome came against Jerusalem. And then I've also said Vespasian came against Jerusalem. He was the general in charge of the army when the, when the first assault happened um, or, or you could say also that Nero came against uh, the the Jews because he was the initiator of the uh, uh, of the Jewish war that uh, signed the uh, the decree for Vespasian to go and, and take the region and then if you look at the ten horns of the beast uh, the ten horns mirror the fourth beast in uh, in Daniel chapter seven verse seven. You can go back and read that. And if you're in Daniel chapter seven, I encourage you to read the whole chapter. Uh, the ten horns of the beast in Daniel seven are identified for us in Daniel seven verse twenty four as ten kings that arise uh, from this kingdom. And this same interpretation of these ten horns of the beast is given to us in Revelation seventeen twelve. Uh, uh, in Revelation seventeen twelve, it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These are uh, kings that probably are, denote uh, the auxiliary nations that the Roman Empire uh, had conquered and were fighting alongside Rome. Uh, each uh, province that uh, Rome uh, conquered, when it conquered a people group, it left uh, it appointed rulers there sometimes from the population itself a great example of that is Herod uh, right now we are in my Sunday school class we're going through Acts and we're in, at the point where Paul is having his trial before Agrippa and Herod Agrippa II is a perfect a perfect uh, example of uh, a person who is allowed to rule uh, by by Rome he he really to be honest he didn't have any authority on his own 
uh, he was given that position by first Claudius gave him some territory and then Nero gave him some territory. He was allowed to rule uh, by the Roman Empire. And so he was a king, really, that didn't have a kingdom. He's called King Agrippa in the New Testament, but his kingship was dependent upon the Roman Empire for his power. He didn't have any power on his own. And so these ten horns, and the number ten doesn't have to be taken literally as if there was only ten. Uh, We've seen that over and over again. But these are the subordinate rulers who serve the Roman Empire. Uh, each province was uh, was uh, uh, appointed a ruler. Sometimes it was a Roman. Sometimes it was someone from the indigenous population. Uh, and during wartime, when Rome go, w- went to war against uh, its enemies or rebellions that cropped up among the people, these auxiliary nations with these rulers, uh, they went to battle with the Roman legions uh, against uh, against their enemies. And we're, we saw, saw that before when Rome came against uh, Jerusalem. It wasn't just Romans that came against Jerusalem. It was the entire world, basically, the entire Roman world, because there were auxiliaries from all kinds of different people group that accompanied the army. To uh, to siege uh, Jerusalem and, and this beast, uh, I, I didn't I didn't put much uh, emphasis upon it because I think I talked about it last uh, time in uh, chapter twelve. But the seven heads also uh, is a composite picture of Daniel's beast because there were there were uh, there were four beasts uh, one of the beasts the third beast the leopard I believe that represents Greece um, it had it had four heads uh, and so you got four heads plus the other three heads make seven heads so you, not besides the fact that he mentions the leopard the lion and the bear which is exactly the same beast that Daniel mentions you also see them combined together in the number of heads and the ten horns uh, is associated with Daniel chapter 7 as well so what you see here is uh, John presenting the fulfillment of um, all the things that Daniel has said before what you see in this Roman beast is a culmination of all the beasts that have come before all the ones who have uh, 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 came come against God's people and it is the um, what I would call the eschatological uh, beast in the eyes of uh, in the eyes of uh, uh, the believers and the and the and the Jews at this time and so this beast also is said in verse 1 in Revelation 13. I know I'm moving really slow, uh, but there are blasphemous names upon his head. <clears throat> We've seen this before. The Caesars, you know, which Revelation has already told us in chapter 17 that the heads represent, uh, they were worshipped as gods, uh, especially after, especially in the outlying province, provinces like Asia Minor, where we have already seen the letters to uh, the the churches in Asia Minor, where um, there were temples to Augustus and temples to the Caesars and temples to different to different gods and all those kind of things. They, uh, especially after they were dead, the Caesars. Um, the Caesars were venerated as gods uh, around the time of, you know, you, you could make a case for Augustus, but probably more likely around the time of Caligula, uh, Claudius, and definitely Nero, uh, the emperors started desiring to be worshipped as gods while they were alive. And, and so these blasphemous names upon these heads are the, the idea that these emperors were these kings that uh, five have fallen and one is, uh, they want to be... Uh, they they are seen as gods by a vast ma- majority of the population. Whether they actually were seen as gods remains to be seen, and you can make a case that they really weren't, but they were definitely worshipped as gods because it was part of the political system. It was part of the uh, 
um, it was part of the the culture uh, of the Roman world. Um, the name being on the head is kind of a caricature of the high priest you see in the Old Testament. Uh, he wore a turban uh, on his head. Uh, uh, it's called a mitre in the King James Version, but it's a, a turban on his head. And across the front where his forehead is were words inscribed, holy to the Lord, that was inscribed upon it. And so the holy to the Lord, sanctified to the Lord, uh, would be on the forehead of that, that high priest. Well, here you see the blasphemous names on the head of these, uh, on the heads of these uh, seven kings. It's the false worship of the Caesars. Uh, um, and we've already seen, we've already talked about it. it has, this has features of Daniel's beasts, uh, seven heads of the combination. Um, the, the, their descriptions of Daniel's first three beasts. I've already said that before. The first beast was like a lion in Daniel seven, verse four. Uh, that was Babylon. The second beast was, uh, like a bear, Medo Persia. That's Daniel seven, five. Uh, and then the third one was like a leopard. That was Greece, Daniel 7, 6. So each of these represents a kingdom. And so this beast, you can see the, the kingdom, um, you can see the uh, correlation between the kingdom, uh, the kingdoms in Babylon and this beast representing a kingdom as well. So looking at the, the power of this sea beast. We've already made the case that it's it's the Roman Empire and it's also going to be spoken of as an individual. Uh, we're going to get to that in a minute. But the power of this beast, it says, and to it, in verse 2, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And it says, uh, it says that the dragon is the one who gave this power authority. Now, remember the dragon in this vision is it's, uh, it's attacking. The last time we saw the dragon, it was going to make war with the children, the other children uh, of the woman. We saw that in the last vision. That's going to be the the saints, the dragon himself, Satan himself, gives this beast, the Roman Empire, his authority to persecute and to kill uh, believers. Um, the first widespread persecution of the Christians uh, in, in the Roman Empire was at the hands of, of Emperor Nero. Now, there's a lot of confusion about the persecution of the believers. Now, first let me say, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember, we've we've backed up. John is backed up, and we are looking, we look first at the, the birth of the Messiah and the woman, the chasing of the woman into the wilderness by the dragon, uh, her being protected in the wilderness. We saw that the dragon, we have backed up and, and are looking at kind of the macro storyline here. And so uh, what we're seeing, what we're going to be seeing here in this is the persecution of the people of God uh, as part of the narrative that culminates in the destruction of destruction of Jerusalem and the vindication of the saints. And so the first widespread persecution of the Christians was uh, at the hands of Nero. Now, it wasn't a... A lot of people think of it as a systematic persecution uh, throughout the empire, everywhere. Christians are being hunted down and all those kind of things. Um, it wasn't that way. It wasn't that kind of persecution, uh, but it was it was on a grander scale uh, than had ever been seen before. We'll talk about that in a minute. Where um, basically Nero uh, put the uh, put the blame for the burning of Rome upon the Christians, and from that moment it was open season. It was open season upon them. They were blamed for just about everything, and thousands of them, many a multitude of them, were were killed. We'll see that in in a moment from uh, the Roman historian Tacitus. Um, 
And so this persecution uh, was really the first widespread persecution that uh, took place. Now, it, it needs to also be said that in the outlying provinces, and this is going to be important in a moment, so uh, pay attention to this. In the outlying provinces, not just in the city of Rome and the surrounding provinces, but way out in the outlying provinces, provinces like Asia Minor and all those kind of things, um, Christians weren't necessarily, at this time anyway, they weren't necessarily hunted down. Rome really didn't care. You can see that through Acts. Uh, Rome didn't care if you were Jewish or Christian. Um, but the the thing was when, when the Jews started to make it known that these Christians were not Jewish and they were not subject to the same exemption of worship that the Jews were, uh, the Romans started making the, the Christians sacrifice to Caesar. What they would do, we've talked about this before, they would bring you a, an image of Caesar's head and you would have to take a pinch of incense and, and throw it into the fire and say and say Kaiser Kurios. You'd have to say Caesar is Lord. And of course, the Christians couldn't do that. Uh, they would say Jesus Kurios. They would say Jesus is Lord. And so. Uh, what would happen was uh, what became increasingly more prevalent was that anytime somebody had something against you, anytime, especially if you were a Jewish person, anytime you had something, you know, you spit across my yard or whatever, anything, they would bring charges against you. And those charges in a Roman court, whether you were found guilty or whether you were found innocent, it did not make any difference whether you were guilty or innocent. You had to you had to uh, venerate Caesar. You had to, you had to basically what in the Christian's mind, you had to worship this image of Caesar. Uh, it was required. And so what was happening on an increasingly grander scale was uh, whenever, whenever Christians were <clears throat> brought into court, uh, for whatever reason, even even if it was a stupid reason, and the Roman magistrate would go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But before you leave, you're going to have to venerate the statue, so we know that you're part of our society. You're part of our, you know, this is part of what we do. And and when the Christians refused to do that, they were they were imprisoned, they were put to death. And so uh, this persecution uh, that we see that's it was widespread in the sense that we'd never seen anything like this. Uh, but it was under Nero that that this began. So we see that the dragon gave his power and authority uh, to this beast. The dragon right now in this visionary sequence that we're seeing, he's going after the children of the woman. He's going, remember the woman was the elect of God that brought forth the Messiah. Um, the, the other children are the believers, the, the, uh, those who are co-heirs with Christ, the, us. Uh, and so, the uh, the dragon gave his power his authority to this beast the roman empire to go after to go after these uh believers <clears throat> and it says <clears throat> by way of um by way of identification, uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, many in the first century could have missed this, but in, in verse 3, he identifies this beast uh, as Rome as well by saying one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, what is this? Remember what the heads represent. The heads represent seven kings. Five have fallen, one is and you know uh one is yet to come so the 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 mortal wound is a death blow and what we see here is one of these heads has a mortal wound or a death blow that's that's given to him now if you're thinking along the visionary process and and he's already interpreted it for you five of these kings are already gone 
One is, and one hadn't got there yet. So which one received the mortal blow, you think? Which one received the death blow? It was the one king that was reigning at the time. Uh, And who was that? That was Nero. It was Nero Caesar. In June 9th, uh, what happened, uh, June 9th, uh, 68 AD, uh, the Roman Empire was turning upon Nero. He was absolutely insane. Uh, You can go through all kinds of stories about, you know, it was well known that he killed his mother. He uh, castrated a young boy and married him. I mean, just crazy. Absolutely insane. And, you know, of course, it was it was rumored that he himself started the fire so he could the fire in Rome so he could uh, burn down most of the city to make way for his building projects that he wanted. Uh, And so the the people are turning against Caesar and he kills himself in on June 9th, uh, 68 A.D., and that set off civil wars in the Roman Empire. It was the year of, of four emperors. Uh, a new one would come, take the throne. He'd be assassinated. Then another one would take the throne. There were people that were behind this emperor, uh, people that were behind this general that wanted to make him emperor. It was uh, civil wars going on and on and on uh, throughout the uh, the empire. And it looked like it looked very much like the empire was about to destroy itself. It looked like the Roman empire was done um it it had received a mortal wound and the beast looked like it was about to die but the beast revived in um in 70 uh or or 69 late 69 when vespasian came to rome uh, took the throne and he became the first emperor of the flavian dynasty in 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 rome and it stabilized uh, all the people gathered up under his rule and he became uh he became a a settled emperor um now there are two interpretations of this healing. I've given you one, and I think that's the one that I hold to, is that uh, Nero killed himself, then Rome plunged into civil war. Um, at the time that these civil wars were going on, there was a great decrease in persecution of Christians after Nero's death. Um, and then finally, when Vespasian took over... Um, uh, things started returning to normal. The the Roman historian Tacitus writes uh, this in in his histories uh, one eleven and four twenty five. Uh, he writes this was the condition of the Roman state when Sirius Galba, remember that was the first emperor that took over after Nero's death, who succeeded Nero, uh, chosen council for the second time, and his colleague uh, Titus Vinius entered upon the year that was to be for Galba his last. Remember, he died that year. And it says, and for the state, almost the end. Even Tacitus realized that this was almost the end of the Roman Empire as these civil wars rages. Um, Tacitus also writes that during that year, there were there were three independent civil wars uh, and also foreign enemies attacking. You can see writings in Josephus where uh, at this time uh, he, he says that Rome was laid waste. You can find that in Wars of the Jews uh, 410 uh, And Rome was near ruin in 411-5 of Wars of the Jews. Josephus writes both of those. And then you got sort of a modern commentator. F.F. Bruce says that Rome is quoting here from uh, his book, Israel and the Nation, page 224. It says Rome, they thought, was on the verge of destruction by civil warfare. The empire was about to break up. So this was not a little thing that went on. Many of the historians, many of the people of the time see it as almost the end uh, of the Roman Empire. And that's one uh, interpretation of this mortal wound that was healed in the revived beast. The people followed him. The other one. 
is also, I mean, it's also plausible. And so, you know, whether you hold one or the other, you know, I, I can't say. It's one of many things that we're going to have to talk about in this chapter. Uh, but they see the mortal wound as being the dominion of Satan being defeated at the cross. He's dealt the killing blow. And in Daniel's prophecy, the kingdom of the Messiah is said to crush, you know, all the world powers, all the other powers. So by the cross and resurrection, Christianity is born and begins to grow until it looked like the whole empire uh, would be taken over. Uh, and then, you know, they thought Satan's head was crushed, uh, but it revived and as widespread persecution broke out, allowing the empire to uh, to revive. Um, that's certainly true and could be in part um, part of the interpretation of this passage. Uh, but the the fact that the the heads are specifically given to us in Revelation 17 as the kings uh, and, and one receiving a mortal blow is the death of uh, one of these kings. And then the events that followed Nero's death. Uh, it's just too much. It's too much coincidence for me to dismiss that. Uh, and a lot of people have seen that. So uh, look at the sea beasts following. Uh, all the land, all the earth followed the beasts. And there are also two possibilities here. Um, it could be that what we're talking about in verse, what I'm talking about is the end of verse 3. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. The earth there is the word land that we've talked about before. And they worship, verse 4, and they worship the dragon, for he was given his, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast and who can fight against it so you got two options about the earth following the beast here the land uh, the whole roman world marveled at the strength of the empire's recovery that's a given it's known so the the kingdom seemed invincible you know now that it has risen from the ashes of these civil wars it's as strong as it ever was uh vespasian was a very apt ruler very apt general uh and if the internal civil strife civil wars and things could stop the roman empire pretty much nothing nothing's going to be able to stop them uh that was the thinking and so the whole earth followed them you could say that that was the whole roman world we know that it wasn't the whole earth i doubt that i doubt that the uh you know the indians living in the jungles of south america cared much about what rome was doing at the time um but also the word uh, as we've seen it so many times before the word earth could be translated land and the land aligned themselves with the beast and followed it these are the jewish people themselves and we've seen a focus upon the land so far in revelation and this is something that i mentioned a moment ago but you can see throughout acts the jews aligned themselves with rome in persecuting the christians it's, it's a fact uh that it's a fact that's indisputable from the book of acts all the way through uh the early church fathers documents that have been been written the jews continually brought allegations and charges of sedition rebellion against the christians and that's that's paul's case throughout the final chapters of acts even at even at jesus's trial way back before in before pilate at jesus's trial before pilate what did the jewish leaders cry out the jewish leaders cried out we have no king but caesar uh, they align themselves. They align themselves with Rome, and basically, their thinking was very pragmatic. You know, who can who can defy this empire? Who can come against them? Who can war against them? Now, we're going to see as this is turned loose and the culmination of these things. The Jews are going to increasingly the Jews in Jerusalem after they've been backed into the corner and backed into the city, uh, corralled and rounded up, and that city is surrounded. Jerusalem, uh, they're going to come out swinging. They're going to come out fighting, and they're going 
going to uh, claim that God is on their side. But for the most part, you see, you know, Rome is in control and, and who can fight against them. And when it comes to what line I'm going to get in, if I'm a Jewish man, I'm a Jewish believer, a follower of Judaism, follower of temple worship. If uh, I've got one line over here that sides with Rome. And one line over here that sides with the Christians who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm going to get in the Rome line. You see that over and over and over and over again. They sided with Rome over and over again throughout the book of Acts in in order to get the Christians uh, removed and killed. Uh, the land worshipped the dragon by siding with Rome, by aligning themselves with Rome against the people of God. They were aligning themselves inadvertently with the dragon. They were aligning themselves with Satan and his enemies. Uh, Satan's activity is to accuse the brethren. We saw that in the last chapter. He accuses them day and night before the throne of God. And what was the activity of, quote unquote, the land as they came to uh, to. Uh, uh, want to bring Rome's might and power against the Christians. They were accusers. They were doing the same thing that the dragon had done from the beginning. They were accusing the brethren, accusing. They had truly, uh, the the Jewish religion had truly become uh, a synagogue of Satan. That's what it was called. And remember in the, the letters to uh, two of the churches, uh, John used that term. There was only one people that met in synagogues. There were not, there were not different kind of synagogues. There was only one people. And so they had become a synagogue of Satan. They had aligned themselves in worship with the dragon by aligning themselves with the beast, uh, the empire who persecuted the, the Christians. And they worshipped him because of his might. We already said that they were in control of everything. Uh, in all Judea, uh, all the provinces where Jews and Christians dwell throughout the Roman Empire, they were they were in charge. And so, as we turn now and look at the the sea beast activity, this is what he did. It says, "And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name." And his dwelling, that is his dwelling, that word dwelling there is tabernacle, his tabernacle, uh, that is those who dwelled, who tabernacle in heaven. And so what it says here is that it blasphemes, this is the beast, what it does, it blasphemes God's name and God's people. It's allowed authority to blaspheme for 42 months. We've seen that time frame 42 months over and over again. Uh, but notice also that it says it is allowed. It's given a mouth to speak these things. It's allowed to speak. God is in control even now. He has allowed the beast to do these things. He's given a mouth to speak blasphemies. Uh, these blasphemies that he's speaking are against Christ. Uh, they're not just when you say that the beast is uh, is uh, blaspheming God. It, we're talking about blaspheming the Father by blaspheming the Son. In Acts chapter twenty six, I told you we're going through that right now. Paul tells Agrippa that in his persecuting days, when Paul persecuted the Christians, he forced the believers to blaspheme, and he says that by telling them. I mean, by by showing that he forced them to. Um, 
to denounce and renounce Christ. He was forcing him to blaspheme God by doing that. And so they were forced to blaspheme, given the authority to blaspheme for 42 months. The 42 months here may not necessarily be the same 42-month period as the siege of Jerusalem that we saw. Um, this 42 months uh, most likely refers to Nero's persecution of the Christians, which, according to ancient writer Dio Cassius, began in November of 64 A.D., and of course, it lasted until until Nero's death in sixty eight, uh, in June of sixty eight, November of sixty four to June sixty eight is right at forty two months. Uh, so it's amazing how that uh, how specific these prophecies are. Uh, but you know, there are some that take this forty two month period as being uh, symbolic in both instances, and uh, and we can have a conversation about that. We can talk about that. I'm not just absolutely opposed to those kind of things. But he's allowed to blaspheme God. And he's allowed to blaspheme the saints. Did you see that in the in verse verse uh, six? He opened his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. He's blaspheming the saints of God. This also is an allusion to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter seven. We've seen Daniel seven referenced several times in this chapter. Uh, in Daniel seven verse twenty-five, it says, "He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for time, times, and time, and half a time, forty-two months. That's three and a half years." Um, notice here also in verse 6 that the tabernacle of God is defined for us in verse 6. It's those, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God, it's those who dwell in heaven. Uh, the word dwell in tabernacle, I've already told you, is same same word, uh, same root word. Uh, these are actions taken against God's saints. Uh, these are, uh, it says he, he blasphemes against those who are in heaven, those who dwell in heaven. But we're told throughout the, through in the New Testament, even Paul in his epistle to the, uh, to Ephesus says that the believers, uh, who are alive right now are seated in heavenly places, uh, in Christ. We are seated, uh, co-heirs with Christ. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And so, uh, what we see here is that we have, we're seeing the, the dragon and the beast attacking and blaspheming not only God, not only God's name, but his people. And this is how these blasphemies come about. In verse 7, he actually makes war with God's saints. In verse 7, it says, also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was allowed, the beast is allowed to conquer the saints here. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Roman Empire was in charge of every tribe. Uh, the whole known civilized world was in charge. But he was given to make war against the saints. If you look also in Daniel 7, uh, verse 21 22, I'll read those to you. It says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Same thing that we see here. Until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Uh, he made war against the saints. He is allowed to not only make war with them, but to conquer them. There is this period of time when it looks like 
all of God's saints, we're talking about believers here, are subject to this persecution and being conquered by it. And we see this in Nero's persecution of the Christians. Uh, the historian that we referenced earlier, Tacitus, uh, in his Annals of Imperial Rome, uh, chapter 15, verse 44, uh, he writes this. It's a kind of a long quote, so let me read it to you. It's talking about the burning of Rome and how Nero placed the uh, uh, the blame for that burning of Rome on the Christians and what followed from that. It says, consequently, to get rid of the report, talking about that Nero burned Rome himself, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pled guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. An immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. They were convicted and persecuted, he says here, not so much for the crime of firing the city, setting fire to Rome, but for hating mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed in the flames and burnt uh, to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus when he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer, uh, charioteer or stood aloft in a car, talking about a chariot. Uh, hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. So the Christians were suffering in such an immense way that the hatred that the the people had for them ended up turning to compassion because of the crazy suffering and the immense things that they were being put through. Uh, so we see that the, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints. He was allowed for a time to conquer uh, authority was given over every tribe. It says it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And it says in verse 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Let me just go back to verse 8. It says, All the earth worshipped it. All the earth worshipped the beast. You've got two responses here in verse 8 and verse 9. Same two responses that you have today. Verse 9 and 10, I should say. <clears throat> you have one group of people who are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, we're talking about believers here, uh, all who dwell on the earth, all who dwell in the land will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written, they will worship 
this beast by by submitting to the beast's whims by submitting to rome's whims and following after him the land is worshiping the beast now remember worship doesn't necessarily mean uh bowing down and praying to something worship uh worship means giving your allegiance to it giving reverence to it uh following after it i mean this could uh, could relate to the Roman world, uh, or it could relate to those who who dwell in the land. It says the whole land worshipped him. Remember, they said at the trial of Christ, we have no king but Caesar. They aligned themselves with Rome rather than even their own God when they said they have no king but Caesar. Uh, so those who follow the worldly empire rather than God demonstrate that their names have not been recorded in the book. And you see the same thing today. I, I'm spending a lot of time talking about the first century and Rome and the Christians of the era, but the application for today is clear. You follow, you follow after uh, the state, any state, uh, rather than rather than God's law, God's uh, God's commands. Uh, you you become a worshiper of that state. You become a follower of that state. But there's another response. The other response is that we endure as a good soldier. We endure in faith, trusting that God is in control. In verse 9, he makes sure. He's saying, be careful. I want you to listen to this. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. That, uh, that should perk our ears up to say, what I'm about to say is really important. Verse 10 says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the st- with the sword he must be slain. And here is the call right here. Here is the reason he has said these last two sentences. He says, "Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints." He says, "Look, understand, the beast is given authority. He's given authority to make war with the saints and to conquer them for a time." So it says, "If anyone has is meant to be taken captive we're not talking about random events we're talking about god who is still in control it was given to him authority to make war and so if it's meant for you to be taken captive then to captivity you're going to go if it's meant for you to be martyred to be slain with the sword then to the by the sword you're going to be slain he said but you need to understand what i'm doing here is i'm calling for endurance I'm calling for the faith of the saints. So you got two responses to the beast, uh, to the beast activity here. You got the one group who worships the beast and follows after him wherever he goes, uh, and then you have the other group that's called to endure, endure, uh, and uh, and preserve their faith, even if it means death, even if it means captivity. And this is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. You see the same thing today, and we live under um, a worldly worldly government who is increasingly putting pressure upon christians for this and that uh not a political podcast so i'm not going to get all into it but here's the thing if anyone is to be taken captive then to captivity you're going to go it's god who's in control and we don't change our positions we don't change our morality we don't change anything about what god has called us to do because it may affect us adversely if anyone is called to go into captivity to captivity he's going to go if you're called to be killed by the sword to the by the sword you must be killed this is a call for you to endure in faith uh, no matter what goes on and so that's the first beast. We're going to talk a little bit more about him in a moment. Uh, the second is uh, the next rest of the chapter. It talks about uh, the uh, 
the uh, the Seabees. Before I do that, let me also say I'm looking at some notes here. Uh, this text that that this uh, verse ten in chapter thirteen of Revelation says, "If anyone's to be taken captive, the captivity goes. Anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain." John's taking that from Jeremiah chapter fifteen, verses one and two. It says, "Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not tor- turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask." Ask you where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus saith the Lord: Those who are for pestilence to pestilence; those who are for the sword to the sword; those who are for famine to famine; those who are for captivity to captivity. So the beast is allowed to make war to conquer the saints for a time, but John is making sure that they know that these bad things are going to happen. God's God's still in control. It's a reference to Jeremiah chapter fifteen, uh, and so. As we turn our focus to now the land beast, here's where we're going to get into some interpretational things. You're going to have to just use your own judgment, use your own brain. I'm going to give you a a few lines of evidence. There are some that are way out there that I'm not going to bother with, but uh, there are are two plausible possibilities for uh, the identity of this land beast. So it says, verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed so there are two plausible possibilities for this beast i'm going to give them to you right at the front and then we'll talk about uh, as we go through the text you can kind of make your own decision as to which one you think um the first uh, the first one is something we've seen before. It's the imperial cult, uh, the the uh, the cult of the Roman emperors, the ones who uh, foster the worship of the Roman Roman uh, religion, the uh, uh, the Roman state, the the worship of the Caesars, uh, those kind of things. Uh, we're going to see over and over, and you see it in history that they uh, they were pressing the uh, the uh, worship of the Caesars, the worship of the beast, the worship of the Roman Empire, um, and then the other. The other, other, um, that one's pretty easy to uh, see. The other possibility is that this second beast, which comes from the land, which means it was homegrown, this was a homegrown beast, uh, is the the high priest aristocracy of Jerusalem, of of Judaism. Now, this one might be a little hard to grasp at first blush, but there are, um, we've seen before, the land, the synonym for Israel in Jewish writings. Um, The beast rises from the land here, uh, it rises uh, from among the people themselves, and this beast is later identified in, in as the false prophet. So we know there's religious significance uh, to this beast. In Revelation sixteen thirteen, Revelation nineteen twenty, Revelation twenty ten, uh, this second beast, this land beast, is called the false prophet. So uh, I'm going to, as we walk through this, to, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you. I tend to lean a little bit more toward the high priest aristocracy, and I'll show you why as we go through these texts. But um, the imperial cult uh, is uh, certainly a, a a very good and plausible interpretation of this because you see a lot of the same things in it. I'll show you why I'm leaning toward the 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 high priest aristocracy as we as we go along. It says. 
it has this beast has two horns and it's compared to a lamb now the two horns is possibly an allusion to daniel chapter 8 uh, verse 3 you have the ram with two horns but the point is here that the beast looks like a lamb i mean from outward appearance the beast looks good uh, he looks righteous uh, this is a parody of the true lamb of god if you look at the, the outward appearance of this beast the things that it said the things that it does you would say you know this is this is a, a, a righteous thing this is something worth following this is this is godly this is moral this is righteous but this beast it looks like a lamb it has the appearance of a lamb but it speaks like a dragon he accuses remember what the dragon does he accuses and slanders uh god's people he he uh, accuses god's people the saints day and night before the throne of god he deceives and draws men away from god uh this is exactly what we see throughout the new testament the jews coming bringing slanderous accusations against the christians it wasn't necessarily the imperial cult that brought slanderous accusations it was more the jewish populace in the first century that were bringing these accusations against the christians Uh, and so that's one piece of evidence but look at the activity of this land beast in verse 12 it says it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed now here's the thing did you notice what it says it says the authority of the second beast is exercised only in the presence of the first beast. Really, it doesn't have any authority. Uh, the only authority that it has is what has been given to him from the first beast. He has no authority except in the presence of the first beast. If the first beast wasn't around, this beast wouldn't have any authority at all. The Jewish leadership repeatedly uh, brought Christians before the Romans to have them judged because they could not judge themselves. We saw this before. There was a case of Paul. It was imperial policy was not to go after Christians later in the years following I think it's the third century we have correspondence between the Emperor Trajan. I think that's the the Emperor and Pl- and Pliny the uh, the younger, who was a uh, governor of Bithynia. He we have a, a correspondence between them uh, where Pliny is saying, "What do I do about these Christians?" And Trajan puts the policy in place where it says, "You know what? We're not going to we're not going to go after them. We're not going to spend Roman money and resources going after these Christians. But if any of them are ever brought to your courtroom, if any of them are ever brought before you, you make make sure they renounce Christ." You make sure they uh, offer homage to Caesar before you let them go. And so uh, the Jews, we've already seen this as to to uh, uh, separate themselves from the Christians in the minds of Rome. They would always bring accusations. It doesn't matter if they were even silly accusations. But once Christians were in that courtroom, they were required to give homage to Caesar. And so you see that they were they, they had no authority. They had no authority whatsoever except in the presence of uh, of this first beast. And it's says they deceive people this beast deceives people by great signs it works great signs verse 13 it performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast it deceives those who dwells on the earth telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet live and so what you see here this has it work working these signs especially calling fire down from heaven it has all 
all the earmarks of being a truly religious, uh, truly religious, truly godly, truly moral, truly righteous. Um, the reference of fire coming from heaven, of course, you probably know, is a reference to Elijah's activity in uh, in front of the prophets of Baal in First Kings eighteen. Um, and, uh, you know, although the land beast, uh, doesn't do this, uh, by, by God's authority, let's say, well, I should say it does do it by God's authority, but not in God's power. Uh, they simply copy what looks like God's work. He's copying, this beast is copying, doing, making a parody. It's presenting himself, presenting itself as godly, as the way to God, the more, the morality, the righteous. Uh, it's presenting itself as, uh, um, the true prophet when, ex- when reality is the false prophet. Uh, the reference to fire coming from heaven also, uh, it brings forth, it brings forth in my mind anyway, images of the inauguration of the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. Uh, you see the tabernacle in Leviticus nine twenty four, uh, Solomon's temple, Second Chronicles seven uh, verse one. Uh, when those when those um, worship sacred spaces were inaugurated, fire came from heaven. Uh, fire came from God and lit the holy fires, and that holy fire was kept kept lit by the priest. Um, from all appearances, this beast speaks for God. Uh, but in reality, he does not. He speaks as the dragon and he deceives those who dwell on the land. This is one of the reasons why I think it's the the uh, high priest aristocracy. Uh, those who dwell on the land is a common expression in the Greek Septuagint uh, for uh those who dwell in Jerusalem, those who dwell, the Jewish people, the people of God, uh, those who dwell in the land. You see it over and over and over and over again uh, throughout the Old Testament. Those who dwell in the land. It says that this beast deceives, this beast that rises from the land deceives the people who dwell in the land. Um, by signs and wonders, it deceives those. Those who dwell in the land, you know, I've already said that's the expression of Judaism. But look what it does. It forces men into idolatry. It erects an image for the first beast. And that's at the end of verse 14. It deceives all those who dwell in the land, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Now, there's some people... There's, again, two options. Some people think that this image is the temple itself. After Christ uh, comes, after Christ ascends to heaven, the temple temple no longer has significance other than simply to keep the peace. Uh, really, I mean, in, in the Jewish mind, of course, it was still sacrifice and those things still going on. Uh, but the high priesthood after the conquering of Rome, the high uh, the conquering of Jewish Judah. Uh, uh, Jerusalem by Rome, Israel by Rome, the Judean province by Rome, um, the high priesthood was appointed by the Romans and the provincial rulers that Rome had appointed uh, appointed the high priesthood. For example, once again, Herod Agrippa II, uh, 
what is a perfect example of this. He was in charge of the high, the appointment of the high priest in Jerusalem as uh, as Paul is on trial there before him. Uh, actually, Paul was on his way to Rome anyway, but uh, Herod Agrippa II is called to uh, listen to his case. Um, the priesthood uh, was uh, was appointed by this Herod, who was a puppet of the Roman Empire. So these the the high priest, uh, the the office of the high priest, the office of aristocracy, the leadership of the uh, Jerusalem community was was basically controlled by Rome. He was appointed by Rome. They were thrown out when they uh, got out of line, and somebody else was put in their place by the Roman provincial governors and the the rulers that Rome had put in place. Uh, the priesthood, uh, the high priesthood and the leadership of Rome had a vested interest in pleasing Rome and keeping the people in line. Um, they effectively turned the temple uh, uh, into, and all of Judaism, into a puppet of the Roman state. Uh, you can see this in, in John chapter 11, verses 47 through 48. And this is when Jesus is... Um, Walking into the city, you know, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest and all that. Uh, It says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were they were subject to Rome. And so basically they were concerned with keeping the peace. Now, Some people also see uh, this uh, another interpretation of this forces men to uh, to worship the image of the beast. As you know, we talked about it before Jews informing on Christians and the Christians brought into the courtroom. And before you could walk out of that courtroom in one piece, it didn't matter if you were innocent or guilty. You had to pay homage to Caesar. You were forced to worship the image of the beast. You were forced to worship the image of Caesar. And so that's also a valid interpretation. And uh, I. I wouldn't argue the point on either on it. It forces people one way or the other to worship the image of the beast. And then finally, these last three verses, and this is where we're going to get into a huge controversy. I don't know how long we've been going and probably way over time, but uh, it says also it causes all both. The second beast causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name and so he's forced to he's forced everyone to give a mark now please 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 don't fall into this insanity saying that the number of the beast and the mark of the beast is uh, digitized credit card codes serial numbers uh, whatever microchips that is just foolishness i can you imagine john in the first century warning seven churches of asia minor beware because in 21st century they're going to want to put a microchip in you no it was relevant to the first century churches and it has application to us today so what you see what you need to do If you're going to interpret all these things, you need to do the same thing that we've done from the very beginning. 
You need to look at the Old Testament reference. Did you realize that having a mark on your hand and on your forehead is a reference from the Old Testament? Uh, when God presented his law to the Jewish people in, ver- in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, he says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Listen, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. They shall be on your forehead and your hand, your right hand. And Deuteronomy eleven eighteen, you see the same thing. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand and on your forehead, on the frontlets between your eyes. Uh, the God is telling them you will take my word and you will bind it as a, as a seal, as a sign upon your hand and on your forehead. The purpose of this, and it's long been known, and you've probably heard sermons on Deuteronomy chapter 6 where he says, this means that you will, the word of God will regulate your behavior. That's what the right hand stands for. And it will regulate your thinking, which is what the forehead stands for. And so you've probably heard that. That's not a new interpretation. That's been uh, been spoken of many, many times. The right hand spoke of behavior, being governed by God's word. The, the forehead spoke, spoke of the thinking the image of the mark of the beast and the seal of the lamb come directly from this passage in deuteronomy the mark of the beast is not a actual uh, physical mark that you can see when you look in the mirror it is always always in revelation the mark of the beast is always listen to me it's always associated with the worship of the beast. You will never see the mark described where the worship of the beast is also not described. It's always associated with the worship of the beast. It's equivalent to the worship of the beast. Now, uh, the mark of the beast is also directly parallel to the seal of the lamb. You're in one of two groups in John's mind. You're either marked by the beast or you are sealed by the lamb. There are no other options. There are no, uh, there are no people waiting to in line to decide whether they're going to get the mark of the beast or the seal of the lamb. You are either sealed by the lamb or you're marked by the beast. It's one of the two. And if you believe that the mark of the beast is a literal physical mark that you can see, then you have to also believe that the seal of the lamb is a literal physical mark that you can see. They go together. They are opposites of one another. It's it's a parody. The mark of the beast is a parody of the seal of the lamb. And, of course, you've seen it before when we talked about that seal in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4 through 6 says and the Lord said to this angel uh, pass through the city through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it so what you see is you are either aligned with the beast uh, which is the state or you are aligned with uh, with the lamb in John's mind, there's no other options. Now, what is this mark when he says it's the number, it's the the name of the beast or the number of his name? Pay real close attention to this these last two verses. So, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about the number first. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This is what the mark is. The name of the beast or the number of of his name. And so it says, verse 18 says, this calls for wisdom. He's telling you right at the beginning, look, I'm going to give you kind of a code here. You need to kind of figure it out. 
Let the one who has understanding do what? Calculate. Count the number of the beast. We are called to calculate this number. For it is the number of a man. He's telling us specifically, the number that I'm about to give you is the number of a man. It's not the number of a kingdom. It's not the number of a whatever. It's the number of a man. And the number is 666. Now, there are some things that you need to know that all the internet crazies will never tell you when talking about the number of the beast or the exorcist movies or the omen or all the foolishness that you see about the number of the beast. I'm going to give you some things that are really common knowledge and have been for centuries, uh, but that uh, all the sensationalists really don't don't uh, don't uh, uh, think about much. <clears throat> the number is not three numbers. It is not six, six, six. Okay. That's not the number of the beast. The number of the beast is one number. It's 666. It's one number. It's not 665. It's not 667. It's one number, 667. So when you say the number of the beast is 666, it's not three sequential sixes. It's one number, 666. So if, for example, if you've seen this crazy lady that's on YouTube talking about the three Vavs that are on the monster can are 666, you know that that's ridiculous because 666, the number, can't be expressed by just writing three sixes in a row, uh, three Vavs in a row. We're told to calculate the number. Let me explain what I mean to that. That may be confusing. I'll come back to the crazy, the crazy monster lady. Uh, uh, in a minute, what's used here is a, a very, very well-known ancient practice called gematria, and that practice was there were assigned in each letter of the alphabet there were assigned each letter was assigned a number. For instance, this is just an example: A would be one, B would be two, C is three, D is four, and so on and so forth. When you reach ten, then they start doing multiples of ten, uh, ten, twenty, thirty. And then when you reach a certain number, they do start doing multiples of a hundred. So when you have these, uh, what you had was people's names by using this uh, gematria formula, they would add up to numbers. You can uh, you can search for the practice of gematria on the internet and it will give you i looked it up before i started this just to make sure that the the search hits were going to be you know uh uh right when, when they give you the tables of gematria <clears throat> and you can find the hebrew the hebrew alphabet the greek alphabet you can find these um uh <clears throat> these number codes excuse me uh in this gematria of uh of what these things stand for and it was a well-known practice it was it was well-known all over the place you know uh people you, you might go to a, a tree or something and find the inscription i love 478 you know and you'd have to figure, you know you'd uh, you'd know that my name equals 478 and so uh the point of all this is if you look uh, i'm not going to give you the table right here because most of you uh probably wouldn't understand the hebrew alphabet or the greek alphabet anyway but in in john is speaking uh but with the table of the the hebrew alphabet he's using hebrew symbols over and over again and the reason he uses the hebrew symbols because uh, you know he doesn't want the romans 
who probably are going to get a hold of this letter to to figure out what he's talking about. And so he gives the Hebrew equivalent in in the gematria formula to Nero Caesar. It's if you look in the outline, I put it in the outline on on the website. Uh, the these I'm going to give you the English words. It's it's noon resh bav noon. Uh, uh, in Hebrew, Neron, it'd be N R W N Q S R. Remember, there was no vowels in the uh, no vowels in the he- in the Hebrew language, and so the N is fifty, the R is two hundred, the W is six, the Vav would be six, the the second noon would be fifty, uh, the Kaiser would be the the uh, Q would be a hundred, S be sixty, and R again is two hundred, thus equals six hundred and sixty six in the name of Nero Caesar. It'd be Neron Kaiser uh, is the name, 666. Now, that has been disputed because uh, if, if you don't know Hebrew, this might be a little confusing. Uh, I'm not a master of Hebrew myself. I, I do have you know I ha- have been trained in it, but you know I can read it functionally, but not very well. Um, there's some discussion about Neron, the the N at the end of Neron, N R W N in in Hebrew characters, uh, is uh, a movable N. We it is uh, a defective spelling, is what they call it. Movable new is in Greek. Excuse me. Uh, it's a defective spelling, and so there's some there's discussion about whether this should be there or not. Would they have known that this was there? It really doesn't equal 666 if that N is missing. Uh, but we have also, and a lot of people don't know this, we have some Latin manuscripts that give the number of the beast as not 666, but 616. And so the Daniel Wallace has a famous joke. He's a textual critic and a, a Greek professor at Dallas Theological Seminary he gives a famous joke that if 666 is the number of the beast 616 must be the neighbor of the beast and so the, it's given as 616 because in Latin, if you use the gematria on the Latin alphabet, there there is no there is no final n at the end of Neron, and that makes the that makes the name uh, 616 rather than 666. So you have two manuscripts rather than 666. So you have two manuscripts. Um, Two different uh, families of manuscripts. One, one in Greek. One showing the Hebrew, the form of the word. You have another in Latin for a guy who probably didn't speak Hebrew, but he knew the knew what the answer to the riddle was, and he just wrote it in in Latin. You have six one six that equals Nero Caesar. You have six 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 that equals Nero Caesar, and so you have all of this taking place uh, in in the context of John showing us the beast that has seven heads, which are seven kings, five or dead and one is reigning and that was the exact order that Nero Caesar came to power in after uh, after uh, Claudius and so all of these things all of these things combined uh, show they speak to me anyway pretty convincingly that um, that this is speaking in a first century context of the Roman Empire headed by Nero Caesar that persecuted the Christians that is making war upon them and the land beast is uh, the Jewish aristocracy that aligned itself with the beast against the Christians and you see that still today if you need application for today if you can't figure it out on on your own I think it's pretty obvious uh, the the church when, when, when any religious institution aligns itself with the state we understand when that state goes into a world 
worldly direction causes us to um, to forsake God's laws, even for practical reasons, forsake the worship of God. We are called to endure those things. We are called to stand fast. As far as the buying and selling. Uh, uh, once again, there are many other interpretations of uh, 666. The the most uh, the most widely accepted, I think, would be um, uh, Linsky in his commentary writes uh, using using the uh, the uh, the Greek uh, gematria formula for the numbers 600, uh, then 60. And then six, he he has come up with a, a system that shows the um, you know the the six is not the perfect seven. It's the number of humans, and then you have the the triad formula of uh, of six hundred and sixty six shows the the defectiveness of mankind when when presented next to the seven 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 of the perfect God. Uh, he goes into great detail about that, and he's a very uh, studied scholar, very smart man. So I don't discount his opinion uh, whatsoever. You can find that in Linsky's commentary on the New Testament and Revelation at this point. Um, I, I just tend to lean toward the uh, Nero Caesar just because there's so many that fit, and Linsky's view doesn't explain the 616 that we see in many other, um, many other Latin manuscripts. And so, the buying and selling. Finally, uh, this is uh, this has been also much debated. I told you in this chapter is a lot of a lot of things are debated. What in Revelation isn't debated? A lot of people are going to disagree with me right here. Uh, but as Christians were commanded to offer incense to the image of the em- emperor, uh, they would receive a certificate, and this certificate was called a libellus. Uh, in fairness, in full disclosure, the only uh, libeli, the only certificates that we have in our possession are from the third century. So they they are way past uh, the only archaeological evidence we have of these certificates uh, really postdates the period that we're talking about. But this certificate bore the emperor's seal and it was necessary for Christians to, or anybody to possess, to prove that they had paid homage to Caesar, that they were part of Roman society, that they had sacrificed sacrifice to the emperor and it was necessary to be involved in Roman society in commerce and buying and selling um, government uh, sanctioned whatever buying land uh, whatever uh, you had to you had to prove that you had paid homage to Caesar and without paying homage to Caesar you were you were excommunicated you were uh imprisoned you at most didn't have one of these um one of these uh certificates and in the third century this caused a great uh, the probably the first schism in the church was what to do about these people who went on and worshiped went on and paid homage to caesar and uh uh got their certificate but now the persecution's over they want to they want to uh, get back into the church that was probably one of the first breaks the first schisms of the church but that's all another story um the other view of the buying and selling is that if you were a jewish christian in the city of jerusalem the the uh 
the society of Judaism being ostracized, excommunicated from the temple, uh, it bore a similar penalty. You were you were ostracized. People didn't do business with you. They didn't they didn't involve themselves in commerce with you. Uh, the point of all of this is the the central verse that comes at between the discussion of the sea beast and the land beast is that this is a call for Christians, for believers, for the saints to endure and to persevere in their faith, no matter what goes on, no matter what we're called to do, what we're called to endure, what we're called to face, what persecutions that we are called to witness or go through, we are called to endure for the name of Christ.